at the beginning of our time. So if you're looking at the Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 150. Uh, Deuteronomy 5 and follow along as I read the first 21 verses. When I'm done reading, uh, I'll say this is God's word and invite you to join me in giving thanks to God uh, by saying with me, thanks be to God. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, that is Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at the time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you are afraid because of the fire, and you do not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Imagine that from the earliest age that you can remember, everything is up for grabs. Which gender you are, what sort of job you'll have one day, whether you respect your parents or not, whether you'll be a religious person or not, whether you'll switch religions or just give up religion altogether, whether you're attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex or both or neither. Everything up for grabs. Imagine trying to find work that is meaningful and yet at the same time work that pays you enough to live a middle-class lifestyle. Everything up for grabs. Well, this is, uh, I take this from journalist and writer Colin Hansen, and he says how kids have lived in this environment, especially for the last 10 years, and we're starting to see the consequences of it. You see, living like everything is up for grabs, that sounds very freeing, 
But when you start to live this way for some time, you soon discover that it's actually quite overwhelming. And thus the epidemic of anxiety and even self-harm in our current day. Hansen explains that living like everything is up for grabs creates a sense that everything is fluid, that there's nothing permanent, that there's nothing reliable. It's a sense that there's no order, no meaning, no clear path to follow, no even right way to live. So you preach that everything's up for grabs and what you end up doing is creating people who focus so much on their freedom, but they don't know how to use their freedom well. It's overwhelming. So is there a right way to live? And if there is, are you able to live that way? Well, these are great questions. These are important questions. And from Deuteronomy 5 and 6, I want to convince you that the answer to both of these questions is yes. That's the main point of these two chapters, which we pray is the main point of this sermon. That there is a right way to live. And by God's grace, you can live that way. Now, it will take a little bit of work to see this unfold over these two chapters, but just to bring us up to speed from what we've seen so far in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy as a whole is all about God getting his people to move forward with what he's called them to do. Through Moses, God speaks to the generation that comes after the one he freed from Egypt and the one that died off in the wilderness. It's 40 years after the Exodus, and once again, God's people are on the cusp of entering the promised land. He's calling them, quite literally, to move forward. Now, Deuteronomy begins with God calling them forward by reminding them of what came backwards. He reminds them when they trusted in themselves, they failed. But when they relied on him, they succeeded. Last week in chapter four, God begins to convince his people that obedience to him really does matter. That yes, he he gave this promise of land out of grace, not because they've earned it, but they're to receive this promise by trusting and obeying him and by walking in his ways. What are those ways that they are to walk in? And what will it take to continue to walk in those ways? Well, we see that in chapters five and six. We'll make three stops along our journey this morning in these chapters. The first stop, we'll look at the contours of the covenant. Here we're looking at chapter five, verses one to 21. These verses outline the right way to live. Next stop, we'll look at the challenges of the covenant. We're looking there at chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. And there we're seeing why it's so hard to live the right way. And the last stop, we'll look at the continuance of the covenant. We'll look at chapter 6, how they could begin to live God's way over the long haul. So that's the plan. Three stops on the journey. First stop. The contours of the covenant. So what are the specific rules and statutes from God that they're supposed to follow? What is the right way to live? Well, this chapter begins to outline that. But before he does, Moses reminds them about the time God originally gave them the Ten Commandments. It was 40 years ago prior to this moment. But chapter 5, verse 3 stresses that these rules and these statutes still apply to the ones who are alive today. It's a reminder for you, just looking at chapter 5, verse 3, that God's word is living and active, like a double-edged sword. That God's word is permanently relevant for every generation. So just rubber meets the road. This is what this means for you. That when you stand before God, God's not going to ask you what your grandmother did with God's word. God's going to ask you what you did with God's word. So before Moses outlines how God has called them to live, 
He reminds them of what happened when God gave them the Ten Commandments in the first place. Mount Sinai, he comes down and smoke and fire. It's a terrifying scene. In so many words, Moses basically tells them, remember that time when God showed up at the mountain and you guys basically peed your pants? (laughs) He doesn't actually say that. But he does say they were afraid. They heard directly from God. And so before Moses outlines the specific ways God's called them to live, it's like he gives them two reminders. He says, these are for you, not just for your mom and dad. And you should treat these with the utmost seriousness. So finally, we get to the contours of how God's called them to live in covenant relationship with him. It's summed up in what's called the Ten Commandments, but it's literally called the Ten Words. You probably know them, but just to review them, it's have no other gods before Yahweh, make no idols, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, Observe the Sabbath day, honor your father and mother, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't covet. We don't have time to go into deep detail in all of the, for all of these commandments, just as a little bit of rationale for that in, in our series in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm treating it not so much like a flyover tour, like we're in a plane, not so much like a walking tour, like we're just walking through the forest. I'm treating it like we're in a car along the forest. We, get, we cover a lot of ground fairly quickly. We can stop the car and get out and look at some details along the way. And I was reminded this week uh, from blogger Tim Challies that there are a couple of ways that you can read the Bible. You can read the Bible uh, either for familiarity or for intimacy. Uh, and this series in Deuteronomy is mainly so that you would be familiar with it because I think so many of those in the church are unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Yet at the same time through this series, I want there to be moments of intimacy, moments of depth where you and I are closer to the Lord. So not going to go in deep detail on all these Ten Commandments. However, I want to make five high-level observations about the Ten Commandments. So high-level observation number one. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law. A summary of God's law. So if all of God's law is like the Constitution, then the Ten Commandments are like the Bill of Rights. If uh, all of God's law is like the stream, then the Ten Commandments are the fountain from which the stream flows. In fact, uh, many commentators on Deuteronomy have observed how after Moses lists the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, The Ten Commandments become like an outline all the way through chapter 26. Moses just expands on them and explains them further. So don't get me wrong. All the statutes and specific rules uh, that they were to follow did really come from God. But there is something unique about the Ten Commandments. You can even look later at chapter 5, verse 22. These were the ones that they uniquely heard. These were the ones that were uniquely written down on a tablet. Two of them, actually. This was one copy for them and one copy for God, terms of the agreement. These are the commands that were stored in the Ark of the Covenant. There's something unique about them. They're a summary of God's law. Second, high-level observation. The Ten Commandments are a response to salvation, not a reason for salvation. A response to salvation, not a reason for salvation. I've pointed this out in previous weeks, but I think it's worth noticing again. Look at verse 6. God says, I am the Lord your God. Just press pause. 
You notice there, a personal relationship with God is already established. It doesn't hang in the balance. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So again, notice, the salvation is already accomplished. It doesn't hang in the balance. So it's not like God showed up to the Israelites while they were enslaved in Egypt, and he said, listen, everybody, I have a proposition for you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I got these great set of rules. They're going to be great for you. I'm going to give these to you, and then I'm going to come back five years from now. Okay? Five years from now, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to see how well you did in keeping these rules. And if you do well enough, well, I'll see what I can do about this whole Egypt situation. That's that's not what happened. Pastor Kevin DeYoung writes that the Ten Commandments aren't instructions about how to get out of Egypt. They're instructions about how to stay free after God's already gotten them out of Egypt. So again, the Ten Commandments are not a reward for obedience. The Ten Commandments are, or the salvation, that is, is a reason for obedience. um, Response to, not the reason for. But I, I wonder, this insight, this order, I wonder if that changes how maybe your non-Christian friend would think about what goes on at church every week. Maybe I don't want to take for granted here if you're, whether or not you're a Christian. And I, I wonder, what is your impression about the people at church, what goes on at church? Maybe you think the people here are mainly nice, maybe a little naive, sometimes judgmental. And then they waste a perfectly good Sunday morning to come sit in a building and hear all these rules about life. Don't do this, do that. Is that all that we're doing when we come here? To say, like, if you do well enough, maybe one day God will let you into heaven. And if that's your impression of what church is, it would make sense that someone would respond and say, well, I feel like I'm already a decent enough person. I don't need all these extra rules. Or maybe someone else would respond and say, I'm just too far gone. There's really no point in me doing any of these rules. Friends, Christians understand that each one of us knows you and I aren't a decent person We haven't done well enough, but we also know that we're not out of reach of God's grace. So that when we come together, we celebrate and we remember that in God's great love, God has already saved and rescued me, and now I live for him. So our obedience is a response to our salvation, not the reason for our salvation. Third, high-level observation about the Ten Commandments. They are best understood in light of what the Israelites endured in Egypt. They're best understood in light of what the Israelites endured in Egypt. This is reading them in context. So yes, we say the Ten Commandments are a response to God freeing them from Egypt, but also the Ten Commandments are God's way of setting up a better life and a better society than the one that they had in Egypt. Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright is really insightful on this. So just to go through all the Ten Commandments briefly and how they, how they contrast to Egypt. So previously, the Israelites labored under Pharaoh. We remember from Exodus that Pharaoh denied that Yahweh was God. He said, who is the Lord? And actually, Pharaoh received worship as a God himself. And so the first commandment flows naturally out of how the Lord proved that he alone is God through the plagues and through the splitting of the Red Sea and through the Exodus from Egypt. Or the second command, remember life in Egypt for the Israelites. Life in Egypt, idolatry, was rampant. And so the second command stems off the temptation to indulge in idolatry like they they had around them in Egypt. 
Or the third command, remember how in Egypt, God demonstrated the preciousness and the power of his name. So in the third commandment, it reminds them to revere his name, not to use it for selfish gain, not to, not to take it lightly. Remember in Egypt that the Egyptians subjected the Israelites to unrelenting slave labor. And so the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day, shows that God is a better king than Pharaoh. Look at how this command is laid out in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. You can see how God has an eye for the most vulnerable in society, those who would be easily taken advantage of. He wants them to be treated well. He wants them to have a day of rest. Or remember life in Egypt. How at the very beginning of Exodus, Egypt led a campaign to kill Israelite baby boys in order to control their population. Not only did this destroy lives, it also destroyed families. And so there are commandments to preserve life. The sixth command against murder. There are commands to preserve the family. The fifth command to honor parents. The seventh command against adultery. Remember life in Egypt for the Israelites. Egypt economically exploited Israel. They robbed them of the fruit of their labors. And so the eighth commandment is against stealing. And the tenth commandment is against the heart behind stealing. Remember life in Egypt. In Egypt, there was no justice for them. There was no due process for the Israelites. There was no fair legal system. And so the ninth command tells them to protect the integrity of their justice and legal systems. The Ten Commandments are read best in light of what they've endured in Egypt. And I think when you read the Ten Commandments this way, you don't just see a bunch of do's and don'ts. You see a stark contrast between the world's ways and God's ways. Friends, I wonder if that contrast is uh, visible in your own life. That that you, living in God's good boundaries, that people see the, the joy in that and not just the drudgery in that. When you read the Ten Commandments in this way, you see that God didn't just free them from Egypt. God freed them and intended to set up something better. If they followed these, they would stick out from the nations around them. Fourth high-level observation about the Ten Commandments. How you relate vertically to God will shape how you relate horizontally to people. How you relate vertically to God is really the foundation of how you will relate horizontally to people. Looking at the Ten Commandments, people, I think most are familiar with them, and a lot of people can probably get on board with commands five through ten. Most people would say, yeah, you should honor your parents, shouldn't commit murder, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't steal, you shouldn't be greedy. I'm on board, I get it. But a lot of those same people will try to do those commands while skipping over commands one through four. Maybe you've heard people put it like this. I don't need God. I don't need church in order to be a good person. The problem with that is after some time, that's like building a house with no foundation. You could try, but after some time, the house is going to crumble. Think about it this way. I think we see it right now in our own country with, with all this emphasis on civil liberties, individual human rights. What's the foundation of that? Let's say you take away the foundation that people get their worth because every person is created, created in the image of God. If you take that foundation away, where do people get their worth? What's what's the basis of a worth of a human being? Well, if it's not that people are created in the image of God, it must be that that people's worth is based on how useful they are to you or to society as a whole. I don't see any other real foundation. 
If that's the foundation for how you treat people, oh man, you, you push that ball down the field, that doesn't get you in good places. That gets you in sex trafficking, that gets you in abortion, that gets you in genocide, that gets you into a society filled with selfish people. The relationship, how you relate vertically to God is the foundation for how you relate horizontally to people. I think you see this connection most clearly in the fourth command. So if you look at verse 14, you can notice that the Sabbath day is to the Lord, but then it goes on to explain that the Sabbath day is for the benefit of people. So the vertical shapes the horizontal. I think you would think about this from another angle as well. That every time you sin horizontally against another person, it is first a sin vertically against God. Martin Luther is famous for pointing out that every sin is really a violation of the first commandment. So that someone commits adultery, not only do you sin against that person, maybe that person's spouse, you also sin against God. Because you're serving the idol of self and sex instead of him. If you were to steal, not only would you sin against the person you stole from, you would sin against God because you're communicating to God, God, I don't trust you to provide for me. I don't rest in you to do all that you can for me. The the vertical shapes the horizontal. And that flows into our last high-level observation about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments call for heart obedience not just external obedience, heart obedience, not just external obedience. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question was on the lips of one called the rich young ruler. We read about him earlier. And when he asked him that, Jesus points back to the commands. And and he actually, I think very wisely, points to commands that are relatively outward, the horizontal ones. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy responds, well, Jesus, I got those covered. Well, then Jesus exposes his heart. He exposes the vertical. He says, all right, go, sell all you got and come follow me. Heart is exposed and it turns out that this man's God was not Jesus, his God was money. God cares more uh, than just your external obedience, but your heart obedience. I think the command that tells you that most clearly is the 10th one of not coveting, pining after what's not yours. This tells you God's not just concerned with your outward actions. He's concerned with your motives, your attitudes, your heart behind your actions. The apostle Paul said himself, this is the command that exposed him as a sinner. Paul recognized, recognized that coveting shows something about your heart. He says that coveting is idolatry. It shows you place an idol where God belongs. Friends, God knows that your obedience is more than appearing to be pure on the outside. It is actually being pure on the inside in your heart. Speaking of being pure, um, anybody know what a purity ring is? Anybody wear a purity ring? Okay, so the Jonas Brothers wore them, so you know that they're cool. Um, so... <laughs> So big in the, in the 90s, you wore a purity ring to communicate that you, it's a pledge that you are saving sexual relations for marriage. Pastor G- uh, Garrett Kell writes that, uh, I think very funnily, that uh, the Bible doesn't reduce purity to a pledge to keep your pants on. Yes, God cares about the purity of your actions, but God cares even more about the purity of your affections. He cares about the posture of your heart. So here's the rub. You can fool yourself into thinking that you're pure just because you haven't gone all the way. 
The kind of purity God desires doesn't ask how far is too far. No, it asks rather, does what I do with my thoughts and with my body bring honor to God? Because he cares more about external obedience. He cares about heart obedience. All right, so we've made five high-level observations. This is the longest point of the sermon, don't worry. Uh, But I think we should answer one more question before we move on. What role should the Ten Commandments play in the Christian life? What role should the Ten Commandments play in the Christian life? For starters, I hope you see, especially from this last observation, that the Ten Commandments expose your sinfulness. Expose just how much rebellion against God has invaded your heart and your life. But if God cares about your heart, if he cares about your motives, then he cares more than about the fact that just you've never killed anybody. No, like we talked about earlier. If the, the sin of murder or the sin of adultery is like the full tree, then Jesus says your anger and your lust show that you have the seeds of that tree in your heart. The Ten Commandments expose you. You need someone to stand in your place and live out the Ten Commandments in a way that you haven't, and that someone is only Jesus. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. So the Ten Commandments should deepen your appreciation of what Christ has done for you. And at the same time, while Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, he also said he didn't come, away to, he didn't come to do away with the law. So he does fulfill the Ten Commandments, but then he reapplies them to those who trust in him in a new way. So here in Deuteronomy, God's people are a single nation directly ruled by God. And now God's people are those from any nation who trust in his son. So we still follow the Ten Commandments. We just follow them in a different context than Deuteronomy. So an analogy I've I've heard that has helped me is that the Ten Commandments are like a piece of music that's been transposed to a different key. It's the same melody. It's the same music. But on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, the Ten Commandments are applied in a new way. So more, read the, read the New Testament to see how they apply the new com- Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments outline the contours of God's covenant with his people at that time. These are the specific rules and statutes God called them to obey. This is what it looks like to live right in response to their salvation. Next stop on the journey, a briefer one, is the challenges of the covenant. Here we're looking at chapter five, verses 22 through 33. And there in these verses, Moses continues to recount what happened when God gave them the 10 commandments. The people had a dual reaction. On the one hand, they were amazed, but on the other hand, they were afraid. It reminds me of that famous description of Aslan the lion in the Chronicles of Narnia, that he is good, but he is not safe. The Israelites witness something similar. They are amazed at the display of God's greatness and glory at Mount Sinai, but they are afraid of coming close to this holy God in their sinful state. So the challenge is that they are going to stand before God. They will need someone to stand in their place. And so they send Moses. He'll represent God to them and he'll represent them to God. He'll be their mediator. They tell Moses that they'll listen and follow whatever God says through him. That's in verse 27. And God agrees with this arrangement. He approves of their humble, reverent response to him. But God says something interesting in chapter 5, verse 29. He says, oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and keep all my commandments, that it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. 
Oh, that they had a heart like this always. It's like God saying, hey, I, I like how you guys are responding to me now. Oh, but I know that's how, how you're not gonna want to respond forever. So this is another challenge uh, that comes with the covenant relationship given at Mount Sinai. That this covenant comes with laws, but it doesn't come with power to keep the laws. It's almost like a car that doesn't have an engine. But you know this, knowing the right way to live is one thing. Wanting to live the right way is another thing. But wanting to live God's way instead of your own way and actually doing it, oh, that's another thing entirely. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans 7, verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can you relate to Paul just feeling stuck in that way? You say, hold on, Steve. Paul says he doesn't have the ability to carry it out. How is that fair of God to give us a way to live that's impossible for me to do? How is that fair? Now, you hold on a second. Because when Paul says he doesn't have the ability, who does he blame? Does he blame God for that? Or does he blame himself for that? All right, so let me point you back to Deuteronomy 5.29. Does God say, this is impossible and I know you guys can't do it? No, he says more closely that I know you guys won't want to do this. So the fault isn't with the rules. The fault is with their hearts. Friend, I think these challenges, whether it's you need a mediator or whether it's you need a new heart, I think these challenges are a good check for how you respond to the Ten Commandments. Because you can look at the Ten Commandments and just view them very shallowly as a guide to good morals. You say like, hey, we need to set these up in schools. We need to set these up in courthouses because this is all that we need. Well, I'm not here to debate whether the Ten Commandments would be helpful in those secular settings, but I am here to say that the Ten Commandments by themselves are an incomplete package. The Ten Commandments expose challenges that you and I can't address for ourselves, that you need a mediator to stand in your place, that you need a new heart that has the desire and the ability to live in God's ways. So my friend, have you stopped trying to be your own savior and trust that God can do for you what you can't do for yourself or even want to do for yourself? So even as God tells them the right way to live now that he saved them, these challenges are like dark, ominous clouds that hover over the rest of Deuteronomy and really the rest of the Old Testament. But for now, we go on to our last stop in the journey, the continuance of the covenant. Moses has been talking about how God gave the Ten Commandments in the past, and now he pivots in chapter six to talk about how they'll live out the Ten Commandments in the future. It's been pointed out that God's setting up Israel sort of like a new Adam in a new type of Eden. So if you look at verse three, hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly and that the Lord, the God of your fathers, uh, may give you the land that he's promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, Adam rebelled against God's ways and was then kicked out of God's land. So how will Israel, this new type of Adam, continue in God's ways and stay in God's land? Well, that's mainly what chapter six is here to address. Briefly, we'll cover five ways they will continue to live in God's way. The first way is that they'll continue by knowing the singular God and having a singular love for him. Knowing the singular God and having a singular love for him. So Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6, known as the Shema, 
which simply means here, first word of that verse five. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These verses tell them they need to know God rightly and then love God rightly. They need to know there is only one God and that this one God doesn't come in a whole bunch of different forms that they can make up. He doesn't come in the form of Allah or the universe or the God of your own understanding. No, the Lord is God. The Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am, the name that he's revealed himself to them. And since the Lord is the only God, they should entirely love the Lord. Dr. Jim Hamilton likens this to marriage. It's just as you have one wife or one husband that's to receive all of your love. So there is one God who is to receive all of your love. And that word love should stand out, I think, in verse six. It's not that you should obey the Lord, though you should. It doesn't say that you should serve the Lord, though you should. But I think it goes even deeper than either of those. You shall love the Lord. Your obedience and service to God flows out of your love for God. Your duty to obey God's commands comes from your delight in God's character. Second way, they'll continue to live in God's ways, outlined in chapter 6. They'll continue in their love for God by keeping God's word on their heart. By keeping God's word on their heart. Look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Coming on the heels of verse 5, I think this tells you how to live out verse 5. In other words, storing God's word in your heart fans the flame of your love for God. I wonder if you've thought about the Bible this way. I wonder if you interact with the Bible this way. You know, a lot of us, if you're like me, you treat reading the Bible as checking off something of your to-do list. You read the Bible to learn interesting facts. But here, what this is telling you is that to read and interact with God's word as a way to fuel your love for the Lord. I remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How are they to continue in God's ways? The third way, they'll continue to live in God's ways if they pass down their God's ways to their children, if they pass them down to their children. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And it describes a process that involves all day, everywhere. And I think you could see flesh and bones of what this looks like when you read the life of Jesus. You see how observant Jesus was with his disciples. Jesus used everything as a teaching opportunity. He, he talked about farmers and shepherds and sheep and goats and seeds and grass and lilies and birds and current events and more. All day, everywhere. And do you notice how verses 4, 5, and 6 come before verse 7? So, yes, Steve, of course I noticed that. I went to kindergarten. I know how counting works. Okay, yes. What I mean is that the only type of person who's going to teach their kids diligently is the type of person who knows God rightly, who loves God wholeheartedly, and who has God's word on his heart. You're not going to care about teaching your kids if you don't have an active relationship with the Lord yourself. So here's an invitation to pray for yourself, for all of us here, especially for parents, I think especially for fathers. We pray that God, would, would my love for you be so deep? Would your word so pervasively influence my life 
that your word just naturally overflows out of my lips and shapes how I see everything around me. The fourth way they'll continue to live in God's ways is if they heed God's warnings. Praise God, God won't stop loving us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But there are many ways that you and I can stop loving God. These are a little bit like the threats to obedience we noticed last week. Chapter 6, verses 12 through 13 warns them that they can have all that they want and they will forget God when in fact he should be their highest authority. Chapter 6, verse 14 warns that they can put other things in the place where God alone belongs. Chapter 6, verse 16 warns that when they're in a desperate situation, they can test the Lord to try to prove whether or not he can do what he says or whether or not he actually does love them. They should heed God's warnings. And the fifth way they should continue to live in God's ways is if they know why they live in God's ways. They will continue if they know why they live in God's ways. This is just a great section. Would you follow along with me as I read the last part of chapter 6, verses 20 through 25? So it says, When your son asks you in the time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? So when he asks you, pay attention. The reason why the kid asks about living in God's ways is because he sees you living in God's ways. Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. One commentator observes that when the child asks the parent this, it would be really easy for the parent to skip over verses 21 through 23 and just go right to verse 24. Why do we live this way, mom and dad? Well, I'll tell you, son, we live this way because God says so and what God says goes. It would be easy just to say that. Mom and dad, why do we go to church? Why do we skip baseball practice to go to church on Sunday morning? Mom and dad, why don't we watch this type of movie? Mom and dad, why do we live this way? Is it just because God said so? That's true. But how do we know that God, what God says is good? How do we know that what God says really does serve to guard our joy and not kill our joy? Well, it's because God loves you. It's because God saved you. That's what verses 21 through 23 says. So it's not just, it's not just mom and dad, why do we live this way? It's not just because God said so. It's, be, it's because God said so and God is good. And we can trust him because he has loved us. He has rescued us when we rebelled against him. That context makes sense of verse 25, that they pursue living rightly not in order to be saved, but because they already are saved. Well, we should conclude. These are the ways God's people should continue in how they call them to live. This is how they'll keep going. But if you know the story, you know that God's people would not continue living in his ways. Those challenges, those dark, ominous clouds would eventually break out into a storm. But soon, the sun, S-O-N, would shine through. 
Jesus kept the Ten Commandments. Jesus loved his Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. Jesus continued in God's ways by storing God's word in his heart. I don't, I don't know if you remember or ever picked up on it, but when Jesus was in the wilderness of temptation, like Israel was before him and Adam was before them, do you know what overflowed out of Jesus' heart when he was tempted by the devil? It was Deuteronomy 6. Verse 16, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 13, he says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. Trust Jesus to do what you couldn't do for yourself. To fulfill the law and bear the penalty for breaking the law. Friend, you can't live how God's called you to live through your own white-knuckled effort. You can live how God's called you to live as you remember Jesus. Because you will fail. So dare to believe that through Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, you really do have pardon for sin. You will feel trapped. Dare to believe that through his resurrection, you have power over sin. A new heart that wants to follow God. And because of Jesus, dare to believe that there is a right way to live. And by God's grace, through his son, you can live that way. Let's pray. Lord, owe to grace how great of debtors daily we are constrained to be. God, let your goodness light like a fetter bind our wandering hearts to thee. Lord, we are prone to wander, prone to leave you, the one we love. God, give us the reminders, the fuel, the faith in Jesus to follow in your good ways. Lord, we are exposed at how we have fallen short of your glory, but we cling to your grace through your son and we ask your help to live out who we are in him. We pray in his name, amen.